0: Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and I'm here with Inez, and Malika's joining us via phone. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, What's it like being our working from home correspondent again, Malika, with your uh, handy assistant, (laughs) Tippy?
2: Me and tibia are having the time of our life. We had a beautiful wake-up this morning and um, have rolled out of bed and rolled into my office for radio, which is the closet. That's so it's great. Amazing.
0: <laughs> yes, I love this. Um, Inez, how are you going?
3: I am doing the best I can today, and that's all that anybody can hope for. <laughs> Amazing. I yeah. love
0: that. Um, I had this morning, I feel like I unlocked another achievement while riding my bike here where I was able to ride with no hands for long enough to take my jacket off and then tie it crossways around my chest so that I didn't have to stop riding to put it away. So I feel... Extremely, like I'm, I'm gonna ride that high for the rest of the day, no matter what happens. I say that, and then like one tiny thing will happen, I'll be like, I quit. Um, <laughs> so we have a big show as usual today. Um, maybe we'll jump into a rundown. Malika, do you want to kick us off?
2: Um, yes, I do. Um, so this morning we we're gonna start off with an interview with Irene Solides Noy, who is the founding secretary of the Renters and Housing Union or Rahu a member-run union for renters across Australia, which formed as a response to the pandemic for safe and secure housing for all, and they join us to discuss the impact of increased cost of living on renters.
0: And then afterwards we're going to be joined by Isabel Morton and she's a community member who's been involved in analysing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia that affect trans and gender diverse people and is going to be talking to us today about a range of issues surrounding the discussion of trans people in Australian politics and media, including the operation and impacts of the framing of trans lives and identities as a legitimate arena for debate, which, of course, I will say now it is not, and you will hear that again uh, amply in the interview with Isabel.
3: Yeah, an incredibly important discussion. And then next up we'll be joined by Catherine McAlpine from Inclusion Australia. And Catherine is the CEO of Inclusion Australia, the peak national organisation for people with intellectual disability and their families. They join us today to speak on the labour exploitation of people with disabilities and the Disability World Commission. Um
0: And then finally, we're going to be joined by Kelly Court, who's the climate change policy advisor for the Australian Council of Social Service, or ACOS. And Kelly joins us today to speak on ACOS's response to the recent IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes report, and, um yeah, is telling us about the intersection between social policy and climate justice, which I think is really interesting and something we don't talk about very often. Um, yeah, so that's... All we've got on for today, uh, it's going to be a big one and uh, we might chuck on a CSA and get back to you with headlines.
4: Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Naro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded.
5: A
0: 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for the 14th of April. Three Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces this week as five consecutive days of raids in illegally occupied West Bank territory, including in a Palestinian refugee camp in Jenin, continue. Following deadly attacks in Israel in late March, the Israeli army have increased raids and arrests, killing 16 Palestinians in the past three weeks and injuring and detaining many more. Amidst long-running intensification of occupier control measures, including land seizures, mass detention and incarceration of politically active groups, the Israeli state has continued to restrict access to the West Bank, closed Israeli border crossings and increased security checks.
3: And in land rights news, the federal court... Uh, this week, has formally recognized the Waka Waka people as the native title holders of land stretching north from the Bunya Mountains in southern Queensland, encompassing the town of Choburg. Waka Waka First Nations people fought for more than 25 years for this recognition and have described the process as a long struggle to prove their identity and cultural connections. The court ruling noted the history of atrocities committed against the Waka Waka people, including frontier violence, segregation and forced removal. And finally, in news headlines, the Federal Labour
0: Party has confirmed that it will not commit to increasing or reviewing the job seeker payment set by the current Liberal government at around $46 a day, which is well below the poverty line. The Australian Council for Social Services has criticized the watering down of Labor's policy, noting inadequacies in income support as a key cause of poverty, including among single parents, older women and people with a disability. And I also want to note the work of the anti poverty center here of really raising concerns about the need for the um for the job seeker payment to be at least eighty eight dollars a day in order to fall above the poverty line and also some of the, you know, really heartbreaking concern that's been expressed by people that are surviving on the job seeker payments in response to this announcement, um, you know, where really a lot of people were holding out a lot of hope and um it, it is uh you know, it is really heartbreaking and callous to see that hope ripped away um, when, you know, political parties fail to sort of stay strong on this kind of message. I also wanted to mention that Gomorrah traditional owners, who we mentioned last week, voted overwhelmingly against in- entering into an agreement with Santos for its Narrabri gas project, are currently still at the Native Title Tribunal fighting against the Future Act amendment that uh, Santos put forward. And um, yeah, there's just been incredibly staunch fight and resilience from Gomorrah people and um, from supporters, but this is obviously not over yet and there is a push from, you know, state and federal governments and also from Santos to frack in the Piliga Forest, um, which has an incredible amount of biodiversity and also, you know, fracking would have serious consequences for the Great Artesian Basin, which feeds, you know, a lot of different environments around the area. So definitely something to keep aware of, to keep on top of, and to support Gomorrah people in their fight against this uh, fracking of their sacred country. And that's all we've got on today for the news headlines. Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter.
6: In Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Marabin. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alteroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4 30 pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I just wanted to raise some other concerns, um, in international news media headlines because I think this is something that's not been, um, has not been afforded a lot of airtime, but I think is really important to mention. And this is obviously the ramping up of Islamophobic violence in India where Hindu mobs have attacked and set fire to a mosque. And right-wing student outfits affiliated with, uh, oh, my gosh, I can't pronounce the RSS's full name. (laughs) Who can? Affiliated with the RSS attacked, um, you know, Muslim university students in the guise of eating meat. And, you know, street vendors have been attacked. And there have been videos circulating on social media that are really frightening of, uh, you know, Hindu nationalist mobs that are out to, basically incite violence and this is the sort of thing that you know that becomes normalized uh, through various legislative pushes to dehumanize and um, to remove uh, Muslim people from and caste oppressed people a variety of different people from uh, state protections and recognition Um, it empowers and emboldens these really terrifying hate groups to you know, to rise up and, and do these things.
3: Yeah, it's also coming off the backs of the farmers' protest, um, which was started off, you know, in Punjab, um, and it went on for an incredibly long time. And it, like, they were not getting, they were being uh, primarily Sikhs as well from Punjab and also lots of different um, religions and ethnicities were all being exploited for their labor. And India has historically been a secular democracy, but with Modi's uh ongoing prime ministership has continued to make it Hindu nationalist. And I also want to draw attention to uh one of the journalists, uh Rana Ayub, uh, who has been showing a lot about the like the ongoing systemic issues with Modi and the violence that he is perpetuating towards uh anybody that's not Hindu and frankly it's um really horrible to continue seeing yeah um if people want to find out more about this I would recommend
0: following the polis project on twitter so that's at po- project underscore p o l i s which is a radical and independent research and journalism organization that engages in some of this uh, critical watching of the state and reporting on these uh you know human rights violations against muslims in in india and uh you know against the 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 nationalist um like um what's the What's the is there a word is there a portmanteau for religion and nationalism? Uh, my brain is not finding it, but of Hindutva, which I think is yeah really important for people to to keep an eye on and. Um, you know, to, to continue to interrogate and especially for, you know, people like myself who are Indian, um, but living in so-called Australia. It is important to keep an eye on injustices that, you know, implicate us um, both, you know, in our homelands, but also, you know, on stolen land that we're on now. So definitely check out the Polis Project.
4: Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice.
7: 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday.
4: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. proud
1: black man Proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit. First Nations issues. Families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man. Proud black man,
5: you should not wonder. Are you ready to vote? The federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enrol to vote before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID like a driver's licence or passport or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra.
0: A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And
2: Malika, we might
0: go to you for the first interview.
2: Thanks, Priya. This morning, we are joined by Irini Solidis who is the founding secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, a member-run union for renters across Australia, which formed as a response to the pandemic for safe and secure housing for all. And they join us this morning to discuss the impact of increased cost of living on renters. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. morning, Malika. It's great to be with you all. Oh, as usual, great to have you on the show. Um, I guess just jumping straight into it, um, in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a drop in rental prices, making it a bit more affordable. However, could you speak a bit to the rise in rental prices, especially in the last year?
7: Yeah, it's um it's an interesting question that I think um speaks to to the fact that uh it's such a huge huge issue and a growing issue. Um we saw over covid that regional rents rose extremely high um by anywhere between 10 to 20% um particularly in areas where um there were a higher number of demand right so people yeah. were wanting to get out of the city and move out into the regions and then towards the end of last year we saw rents rising in the inner city again because of course the assumption being that covid was over quote unquote yeah. and um international students would be flooding the market again and so of course landlords took the opportunity to put rents up um so I guess a couple of points on that is that it's always going to be fluctuate, fluctuating in that way, but overall it never decreases in a in a significant way at all. So, despite the reduction in market rental prices for vacant rentals, many of our members reported being slammed with in- increases while they were left out of work. So,
2: yeah,
7: um, this bigger picture demonstrates a completely unlivable situation that always gets worse, and it's akin to you know watching the graphs of climate change over the course of 10 years or 20 years. So it's an issue of false supply and demand and it's leveraged and profited by the property industry. So we're trying really hard to make sure that we can actually say we need rents lower, we need regulation to make rents lower and we're absolutely fighting every single individual situation and the larger. Yeah, yeah.
2: Thank you for clarifying that. And I guess The pre-election budget aimed to address the cost of living by including a six-month halving on fuel excise and a one-off $250 payment to supplement income support recipients. However, this has fallen short considering increasing prices for just the general cost of living, including rent. Um, With most residents only spending 3% of their incomes on petrol, but the typical renter spending more than 10 times as much on rent, could you speak a little bit to this point?
7: Sure, it's a really interesting start as well because it just demonstrates how expensive rent has become, and yet it's still considered the cost of living um, when it's one of those things that you you know uh, absolutely, <laughs> essentially need, and it's sort of this almost um, ransom that it needs to keep growing, um, but you also need a home, so. Our members have been quite open um, as a response to this budget that the $250 is absolutely breadcrumbs um, and it barely covers a week's rent for most renters in Melbourne. Yeah. It's really a paltry election offering that we absolutely aren't bought by and I don't think many people are. Um, but, yeah, to the wider point, costs of living are completely unsustainable and, yeah, rent is the most inflated cost. So our our preliminary report, Ruse to Ransom in 2020, found that um, the renters we surveyed would always pay their rent ahead of food, medication, any other essential costs um, because they knew what happens when that cost gets um, left behind. So it's, of course, we advocate for raising the rate of all income support. Um, well and truly above the poverty line. We stand with a w u on that. However, we yes. do need to address the root cause at the same time, which is lowering rents um, and those costs of living because otherwise it's just more income support going straight to landlords' pockets.
2: Yeah, that's extremely true. And I guess you... Started speaking a little bit to this point, but low-income renters are spending more than 30% of their earnings on rent and a third have less than $500 of savings on hand in the event of an emergency. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, recently commented on complaints about rent, saying and I quote, the best way to support people renting a house is to help them buy a house, end quote. What does it mean to have a government that has no clue about the experiences of most renters? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's just that line,
7: oh my God. You know, Scott Morrison has been living rent free off our incomes for like eight years now or more as as an MP. It's it's completely like you know, it's it's almost like he's just baiting people at this point. Um yeah. and look, if the statement was even remotely true, it would be great. Like I don't think there's any renter who would opt out of owning their own home and prefer to rent, like you know Yeah. But the situation is just obviously blatantly awful, uh, out of touch. And I mean, what it means to have a government that has no clue, I think, I think they do have a clue. I think they just don't care. So yeah. most MPs would own on an average three or four properties of their own and they still consider renters to be an afterthought to like the holy property rights of Australia. So yeah. I think it's still this situation of like, depending on the ever-inflated housing bubble for the whole of the Australian economy to rely on, um, both in rent and house prices. They're obviously very attached to each other. And Mm. I think this government has been incredibly lazy and negligent to not have developed a housing policy, particularly over COVID, that actually understands our population circumstances as being more likely to rent, unfortunately, now for longer and at steeper rates. And look, it's, it's growing to be more than 30% of our population and we still don't have a national housing policy um, or any sort of further developments um, into addressing this crunch, like this complete crisis.
2: Yeah. And I guess you touched on this point a little bit earlier, but could you speak a little bit to the role of property developers in kind of this campaign of buy more houses or making more houses that people can buy them?
7: Yeah, sure. In fact, the Liberal <laughs> government, um, the only housing offering in the last budget that they announced was to give $2.1 billion to the NFHC, which is basically a large-scale corporation um, run by property developers, large-scale yeah. property developers, sorry, um, real estate agents and... Um, essentially it had no commitment to public housing, but this was kind of their way of saying we still care about housing policy here. I was given money to this organisation. Um, and they're... Yeah, it's a real risk because we're basically looking towards a very obviously failed model in the US um, mm. of large-scale property developers who essentially become these large-scale landlords for hundreds and hundreds of ren- renters, excuse me. <clears throat> and the conditions of those apartments... Continue to decrease. Um, I mean, we've seen in London, one of the, you know, there can be huge fires. I mean, in Brooklyn, um, last year, 12 tenants suffered serious injuries and deaths, um, from, from an apartment building fire. So there's, there's some really extreme situations that occur when you have these large scale property developers who are absolutely only in it for the money, um, and won't do building up to code, um, and, just have these incredible power imbalances. So I think in some senses we're a bit different here and we really don't want to see that happen um, yeah. in Australia because we already have a public housing policy and model that has worked in the past and needs to be redone again.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks for clarifying that. And I guess lastly, what are Rahu's hopes and events for the government in the lead-up but also following the election?
7: Yeah, the following the election part is the one I'm interested in. <laughs> I think um, we, we've we standed on a very firm position of the need to improve and expand public housing, and we continue that position. Um, our whole membership will always stand for the, the better building of public housing, and at a national level, um, we need to see that funded to see us above OECD average and meet the current and projected demands. We also really want to see some serious addressing um, of the rental market including regulation like red caps, um, assignment of rental market to wage growth, I mean like they do with council rates. We have CPI attached to council rates and we don't have anything even closely similar in rent Um, Mm. and we also want to see sort of mechanisms that can dis- disincentivise property portfolios and large-scale landlord- landlordism because we obviously have seen that increase and we want to make sure that it's completely um, avoided at all costs, if possible. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of those points. And it's a great topic of discussion, especially at the moment.
7: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Malika, and everybody at the Thursday Brekkie Crew.
2: Thanks again. And you're
0: listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And Malika just then was joined by Irini Salidis-Noise, who's the founding secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, or RAHU, which is a member-run union for renters across Australia and which formed as a response to the pandemic for safe and secure housing for all. And they joined us to discuss the impact of the increased cost of living on renters and outline some really important concerns to be aware of uh, in view of the upcoming coming election and speaking of enroll
5: to vote are you ready to vote the federal election is on soon if you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before you have to enroll to vote before 8pm monday the 18th of april if you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID like a driver's licence or passport or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra.
1: A 3CR supporter.
4: Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black... We have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' teas available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports radical community radio. We can send one out in the post, and there's Click & Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, You can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop.
0: You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 727 in the morning. Um... We are now joined by Isabel Morton, who is a community member who's been involved in analyzing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia that affect trans and gender diverse people. And Isabel's joining us today to speak about a range of issues surrounding the discussion of trans people in Australian politics and media, including the operation and impacts of framing of... Trans Lives and Identities as a Legitimate Arena for Debate. Now, I'm going to chuck in a quick language warning just in case. So um, I think there it, it, we might potentially touch on slurs that are used against trans and gender diverse people. So that's really um, something that I want to mention there. Um, we may not touch on it, but, yeah, without further ado, Isabel, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Hello. Uh, yes, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, I mean- thank you. Oh, Thanks so much for the invite.
1: Here
0: yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'm really, um, as listeners can probably tell, I'm a bit more giggly than usual because I'm a bit nervous about this interview, but I'm also really, really excited to be able to talk to somebody who has spent some time thinking about this, and also to have like, um, you know, two trans people talking about this on air. Um, this is the kind of coverage that normally gets. Um, Or, like, this is the kind of conversation that normally is presented, if it ever is, as a reply to, you know, whatever kind of transphobic rhetoric is in the media rather than a standalone thing. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation.
6: Yeah, no, um, it's very – and it's nice not to have uh, my – or our experience, I should say, uh, filtered through uh, cis people advocating for us.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's nice
6: to be able to speak about it on air uh, as peers, I think, in the same community.
0: Yeah, 100%. So I thought we might start off with some of the most immediate concern uh, issues concerning transgender people and particularly trans women that is uh, being used as a political football in Australia in the lead-up to the 2022 federal election. So this week we saw Prime Minister Scott Morrison backing Senator Claire Chandler's push to prevent trans women competing in women's sports. And we also then saw the attempt to, I think, potential scrubbing of um, – of media sites and social media sites of another candidate's uh, trans yeah, <laughs> posts and uh, mentions uh, that have said some pretty horrible stuff about trans people, trans mask people in particular, and yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell us about the bill that Senator Chandler has put up and provide a bit of context about this. So how does it fit into a suite of anti trans legislative initiatives that have cropped up in various states around Australia over the past few years?
6: good question um so this bill the uh slave Women's sports bill uh 2022 it's got a long title but i'm not going to drop that uh so as you mentioned there was a candidate who scrubbed their social media recently and the candidate in question was involved with uh save women sports australia so this is kind of the i think the culmination of that political project uh the bill makes it legal to provide single sex sports quote unquote uh to achieve that it redefines sex and the sex discrimination act to group trans people with their assigned sex so it's men as trans women uh cis cis women with trans men um so those are two wholly separate payloads uh the first part the single sex sports part that basically locks trans women and girls out of correctly gendered sports now there's no data to suggest there's actually like a functional need for this like you might remember the recent kerfuffle around leah thomas in the us which was manufactured by strategically misrepresenting the data um peak bodies don't want it uh netball australia on this one particularly said uh, government doesn't need to intervene well you know they can handle this themselves which is consistent with previous times that this happened uh, there was a similar incident with world rugby about a year ago um his sports women have consistently favored the inclusion of trans women as women uh, and look australia is a sports mad country uh, the point of this bill really is to exclude trans girls from sport sport-based school communities particularly uh, and trans women from a major aspect of public life. Um, so that's, that's the thrust of the, the sports part of the bill. Uh, the redefinition of the sex, in the Sex Discrimination Act is more wide ranging, uh, because basically it, uh, it touches on the way sex and gender identity are defined in the Act. Right now, for the trans protections in the Act to work, sex and gender identity have to be defined the way they are. If you define sex in a way that excludes trans people, Uh, It has the potential to nullify a lot of the, a lot to all of the federal, the federal uh, anti-trans discrimination protections in the Act. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but that's the advice that I've received. Uh, So we don't know how many of the protections this is going to nullify because uh, we amended the bill in 2013 specifically to prevent that. Um, And now we're coming back to this pre-2013 status quo. You asked about context. this is not the first down-down trans legislative push. This has been going on for about a bit over one election cycle now. Uh, first big one in the women's sports theme, we also have uh, Section 28 slash don't-say-gay bills, which forbid schools and governments from discussing the existence of queer and trans people. Uh, there was also a misgendering as free speech bill, uh, which there was one in Queensland in 2020 that got shot down Uh this is different because this is the first time a major party like the coalition has backed the push and it's at the federal level. So this is really the big, the big breakout moment for them. This is where they go mainstream. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, people might be familiar with. Yeah. You know, things like uh, Mark Latham in New South Wales putting up uh, particular bills. There was a recent one defeated. And I encourage people to, to keep an eye on that because, you know, this is happening at various levels of government. But as you mentioned, it is very concerning to see it at the federal level. Um, We also recently saw public backlash against Labour leader Anthony Albanese's claim that men couldn't have babies. And, of course, this all comes off the back of heated media and political debate over anti-trans legislation um, in the form of the religious discrimination bill that we saw in February um, and that you alluded to before. And many advocates have noted that framing trans identities and lives as a legitimate topic for political debate is in itself harmful. And I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about why.
1: Sure. Um,
6: so I think an important part of the context here is really that the uh, the scientific, like the medical and social science consensus on why trans healthcare is necessary, why trans rights are necessary. Like, it's really, really strong consensus. Like, the, the scientific climate, the consensus on climate change is like literally 100% of scientists, and it's, it's kind of on that order. So there are a couple of reasons that it's not that it's harmful I think to debate under these circumstances uh first one is probably that it encourages the perception that there is a debate like if someone says the sky is red you I mean, it's clearly not red so the correct response is <laughs> okay not um it's oh I must protest it's blue for these reasons you know you just go Haha, yeah okay cool guy um second second one is probably that Debating under these circumstances gives transphobes access to your platform, to your audience, to the people who believe in you. Lets them sort of surf on your trust. Lets them figure out how to convince your audience. Like, if your friends are like, oh, I want a peer-reviewed paper from a journal to believe this, there's a whole anti-trans bad science ecosystem ready to pump, pump out something that looks like what they asked for. And if you look closely enough, you can see that it's fake or flawed or what have you or, you know... Um, dishonestly constructed, but nobody has the time to check everything.
1: Mm.
6: Uh, And I think probably the most direct harm, uh, the third major harm, is having a public debate legitimises acting on it in the interpersonal level. Like, if MPs and Senators can be transphobic in Parliament and the media, then it must be okay to be uh, transphobic in the community and the home, because after all, we're just asking questions. It's a legitimate debate, so the narrative goes.
0: Mm. Yeah, it is... It really does filter across all of these levels. And I think um, especially, uh, you know, if people are, are are personally unfamiliar with trans and gender diverse people, they don't know any trans and gender diverse people or they think they don't know any trans and gender diverse people. Um, it yeah. really then allows people to be pushed in one way rather than the other to engage uh, in a way that, Uh, you know, starts off with the premise that undermines trans identities rather than engaging from, I guess, like a, a respect and rights and dignity based perspective. Now, Australian transphobia and the legislative creep against some of the limited and hard-fought wins that trans people have achieved in terms of safety, gender affirmation, and representation here sits within a global context where trans people are increasingly becoming an explicit target in political campaigns, uh, with recent horrifying legislation of active discrimination against trans children and young people across several U.S. states being a case in point. And also in the U.K., we recently saw the... Um, uh, the proposal to excise uh, conversion therapy for trans people from a bill against conversion therapy so could you speak to where Australia is situated in this international context
6: yeah, absolutely um, so we are we are global citizens uh, which in this case is not necessarily helpful uh, because we get to be infected by other people's uh, other people's bigotry uh, especially uh, the US and the UK's bigotry in this case so um, Basically, the anti-trans movement got started in continental Europe in the early 2010s. Uh, It's sort of spread to the US and the UK since then. It's been pushed by a number of powerful institutions, including states. Um, There's a 2021 foreign affairs briefing to the European Parliament here uh, identifying the Russian Federation as a key player, saying Russia wants to, um, quote, sow friction and disunity between European Union member states by targeting trans rights. Um, there should have been an unquote there, but okay. Uh, so we have a lot of imported concepts. Like if you, uh, if you hear anyone in Australia talking about, oh, this gender ideology converting our kids, you know, I mean, that was a, that concept started circulating in Poland, I believe. Um, there's a, there's now a fight in Victoria basically about whether the, um, conversion therapy ban there a couple of years ago was appropriate, which as you say is mirroring the, uh, trans conversion therapy fight in the UK. Uh, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is currently trying to exclude trans people from the scope of conversion therapy protections. Uh, but I think for us, possibly the most relevant country is the US uh, for a bunch of political and constitutional reasons. But what really sticks with me is right now they're at the point of trying to rip away medically necessary transition therapy, originally from trans kids and now some states are starting on trans adults. Um, the starting gun for that was, um, was a... Women's Sports Bill, which was the uh, Idaho Fairness in Women's Sports Act, that was signed into law in March 2020, so two years and one month ago. So it can all go it can all go sideways really fast.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I think also it really speaks to the fact that this you know these discourses circulate, this language circulates, and it's picked up in a variety of different areas and. Um, something that I also wanted to very briefly touch on is where a quote unquote gender critical feminist movement sits in terms of other kind of radical fringe groups, and the talking points that people should be keeping an out for uh, an eye out for rather as they filter further into mainstream discussions because you know um I also want to plug the work of professor sandy o 'Sullivan here talking about transness um, or sort uh, you know, transphobia being a part of the colonial project, but there are also these specific um, specific talking points and language that do kind of circulate within these
6: groups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I have to absolutely agree with your endorsement of uh, Professor O'Sullivan's work, which I found incredibly helpful. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of... Uh, there's definitely a context with right-wing extremism and transphobia like, there was, there was a functioning uh, gender clinic in Berlin from 1999 until the Nazis in um, 1933, so that's kind of set the tone for the following century. Um, I guess we're seeing uh, convergence between uh, the gender-critical feminist movement, quote-unquote, and also Christian dominionism, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, white supremacy. I think with respect to Christian dominionism, the big political fight that they're having there is over abortion rights. Uh, there was a UK court case a while back which was against uh, Trans Healthcare for Kids, which was actually funded by an anti-abortion organisation, but the case law that it created uh, provided a basis to restrict abortion rights. Uh, and the concept in question was uh, gillic competence, which we have to look out for, because that's also in our case law. So there's the possibility of a similar case here. Um, in terms of anti-Semitism, there's what were originally fringe theories, basically, that uh, transness is a plot by uh, three billionaires, all of whom are uh, Jewish, uh, one of whom is George Soros, as so his tradition for this kind of thing. It's basically the same. Uh, it's the blood libel in a modern in a modern format. Uh, you have white supremacy, which I think conceives of white trans men in particular as having a national duty to breed. Uh, if you'll pardon, if you'll pardon the crudity of that formulation. Mm. Um, and the convergence is two ways. Like you have uh, groups from the Capitol attack in January 2021 who originally mostly racist who are now more explicitly transphobic. Uh, you've got prominent neo-Nazis talking about trying to draw gender critics into their movement. Uh, in terms of talking points, uh, I think look for words like uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, sex-based rights, transition regret. Those are sort of red flags that you're dealing with, a fairly heavily ideological line of attack which has been uh, confronted or disproven elsewhere. Look for claims that trans people are new or never existed or they're misguided or they're dangerous or transition doesn't work or transition is a sickness. Any of that is just a sign of a purely ideological attack
0: yeah definitely and i think you've done an excellent job of summarizing so much of that dense information so quickly um now (laughs) you know, <laughs> yeah, with the, it was very difficult. Well, you, you were amazing, <laughs> and I really hope that this is the impetus for more people to start having these conversations so that we can unpack various parts of what you've touched on because there's such a huge range. But you've been compiling an election watch on trans issues for the upcoming federal election, and just in view of wrapping up, I was hoping that you could give us an overview of some of the early takeaways on trans rights or anti-trans proposals in major parties' political campaigns.
6: Sure. Um, basically, so uh, major political actors are the Greens, the Coalition, One Nation and Labor. Uh, Greens are having a bit of a, a fight about organisational culture, but they're endorsed policies, probably best in class. Uh, on the other side, you have One Nation and the Coalition forming a block. Uh One Nation are mostly the extremists at the moment. The Coalition are the sensible, just-asking-questions types. Uh, Labor and liberal wets in the middle. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the wets, because they seem to be an artefact largely of four-party discipline. Uh, which is great for trans people, but not so great for the coalition, so they might not be around for too much longer. Uh, Labor has an OK trans... Sorry, refocusing. Uh, Labor has an OK trans affairs platform. It's missing bits. They also have a credibility issue. Uh, Labor loves to strategically sacrifice trans needs. Uh, Albo has answered a few gotcha questions by going, oh, yeah, men can't have babies, which is objectively untrue. It doesn't inspire confidence. Um, so we're really waiting to see how that unfolds, but uh, things are looking pretty grim for this election cycle.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, for people that want to keep up to date with these kinds of issues and get involved in the fight for trans rights, uh, where would you recommend people to go to find out more about some of these concerns you've outlined?
6: Um, within Australia, I think probably uh, Acon Trans Hub, Equality uh, Australia. There are a couple of places on Facebook that do great work. Uh, LGBTI Rights Australia, Trans Health Australia, a few news sources are uh, out in Perth: Star Observer, the Q News, the, glo- uh, the Trans Advocate. There are a few foreign analysis sources which are excellent. Um, there's gender analysis with Zinia Jones, which is North America based. Trans Safety Network, they're UK based, but um, I get to reuse a lot of their analysis because a lot of uh, a lot of our local Perth groups, uh, gender group groups, pardon me, are actually uh, run from the UK. Um, there's also individual sources. I think in the US, Jude Doyle, Christopher Peterson, Erin Reid. Uh, in the UK, Mallory Moore, David Paisley. Um, I think if people want to participate, they, they can write their state MP, federal MP, senators. Uh, but really, fight transphobia over your kitchen table. Don't accept it at home. Um, we're out of time. We can go from where we are to strategic level, total withdrawal of gender transition in less than one election cycle. If people don't stand up and be brave now, whoever they are, they might not get another chance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just can't do anything but echo that really important statement. Isabel, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk us through uh, a huge range of issues, but um, in a really considered and clear way. And I really hope that our listeners got a lot out of this, and we will be linking to those resources in our show notes. Thank you, Isabel.
6: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that was Isabel Morton, who's a community member who's been involved in analyzing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia that affect trans and gender diverse people. And she joined us today to speak about a range of issues surrounding the discussion of trans people in Australian politics and media, including the operation and impacts of framing trans lives and identities as a legitimate arena for debate. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, or you might be streaming live at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming.
5: PX Farno is a Pacifica LGBTIQ podcast, providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, for more information go to threecia.org.au forward slash out of the pan.
4: Earth Greetings have been making Sustainable beautiful since two thousand and three. They're one hundred percent recycled cards. Plastic-free stationery and Earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
3: And now we are joined by Catherine McAlpine, who is the CEO of Inclusion Australia, the peak national organisation for people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And she joins us today to speak on the labour exploitation of people with a disability and the Disability Royal Commission. Thanks so much for joining me today, Catherine. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks uh, also for getting up (laughs) early, because I know that is not always easy. It's definitely not easy for me. Um, but yeah, how about we jump right in, because I know uh, the Disability Royal Commission is actually currently holding a three-day hearing into Australian disability enterprises, and one of the inquiries showed that people with a disability were being paid as low as $2.27 an hour, and wages were also reported to be calculated with an assessment tool to measure the quote-unquote productivity of employees. Now, I know this is only one case of labour exploitation, but it is an ongoing violent trend towards people with a disability. Um, I wonder if you maybe wouldn't mind speaking on how labour exploitation for people with a disability occurs, particularly intellectual disabilities?
8: Yeah, it's a a really big issue, isn't it? Yep. (laughs) Um, Really, it happens because we've got structural segregation of people with an intellectual disability from childhood in Australia, like, people don't really think about it, but the fact that we um, assume, and in fact it happens, that, you know, up to sort of 50% of, of young children with intellectual disability go to a separate school setting means that people are not brought up with people with intellectual disability, they don't really know them, and if they do, they don't really, you know, might feel nervous or... or unsure of of how to communicate with people well or any of the things, but what happens in effect is that people are segregated from a very young age. And so by the time we get to adulthood and we are looking at employment, people have not had colleagues, have not had classmates with intellectual disability, mm-hmm. they haven't learnt that people with intellectual disability really are the same them, you know, want all the same things, someone to you know someone to love, somewhere to live, product, productive job, you know want to contribute. And so it doesn't occur to them that, that things might be different. So we, we have this sort of really structural thing. We You may have heard us talk about the polished pathway. Mm-hmm. So we talk about a polished pathway to say particularly people in special school, but for people with intellectual disability, all the systems have been smoothed out for people to go into an ADE setting, an Australian Disability Enterprise setting, but there are lots and lots of barriers to go to open employment. And so we just see that the situation perpetuates, you know, on an ongoing basis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I know also uh, recently there has been a new disability strategy from like 2021 to 2031, I believe, and there's an actual employee targeted action plan. And I feel like a lot of the ideas lend to, you know, a lot of neoliberal kind of let's get everybody up into the workforce and the underlying assumption is that, you know, intellectual people with intellectual disabilities don't want to work or can't work but actually it is like s- systemic barriers that are continuously stopping them from working and perpetuating further harm um, and yeah as you said they are just like us and they want the same things and it is a disabling environment um, and accommodations can't be fixed, they have to be flexible and I also know that, you know, negative and harmful employee attitudes are towards like false notions of what capability means, reliability and social cohesion of people with a disability. Um, could you maybe also speak on maybe why employers share this stigma and I guess only appear to really value life in terms of productivity and human capital? Uh, I
8: just it's just amazing and it's a, it's a really interesting thing that there's an assumption that people with intellectual disability aren't productive yeah. and there's no comment, um, but even if you talk about productivity, there's no sort of understanding that if you, um, sorry, I'll just go back and say Australian disability enterprises are geographical, yeah. so they're sort of spread out around, along, around the country. So if you're a person with intellectual disability, what happens is that you... Uh, manifestly, you're, you're given what's called manifest eligibility to the Disability Support Pension. Mm-hmm. Now, that in itself is a good thing in terms of it is true that people with an intellectual disability should have to jump shouldn't have to jump through as many hoops to get the Disability Support Pension. Yeah. Like we know that intellectual disability is a lifelong condition, so we're not looking to make things more difficult for people to access the Disability Support Pension. However, Social disability are automatically, automatically given a job capacity assessment of less than eight hours a week. And because of the complex way that our systems work, it means that the only disability support they're offered is an ADE. So they're not sent to Disability Employment Services to get support to get an open, a job in open employment. And then you go off to your local ADE. So it doesn't matter what your skills and interests are, like the rest of us get jobs based on our skills and interests, the and training and, and all the rest of it. You go to your local ADE. So if your local ADE does horticulture, then you do horticulture. If your local ADE does packing, you do packing. You know, you just, you're, you're just given a job in the local ADE. There's no matching. And what we do know in best practice for people with an intellectual disability is job customisation, which means that a job is customised to the skills and interests of the person. People are very effective employees. so on the one hand, the productivity thing is um, disingenuous anyway to talk about um, to talk about it when people with intellectual disability are their pathway to employment is completely different to everyone else's. But on the other hand, um, yes this thing about not valuing people, Australia is a rich, a rich country and um, we continually continue to say it's okay for this one small group in the population, to be paid, as you say, less than two dollars fifty an hour, yeah, um, and and we're told that that's okay. You know, that people accept that that's a reasonable thing when that sort of income just keeps people in poverty forever.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, uh, sorry, Ronic, <laughs> given what you've just said, that the NDIS, um, you know, definitely champions and a lot of disability services champion choice and control and personalisation, but. You know even the recent reforms into the n d i s mean that the free market is um competitive and makes services more difficult to get and you know disabilities do vary and also understanding that a lot of you know intellectual disabilities um or people with intellectual disabilities sorry often are highly stigmatized against and i feel like those attitudes permeate not just through employment but um yeah throughout so many aspects of life and without being able to address all of those together um and seeing the person as a whole uh it's it's incredibly difficult to provide you know adequate um adequate and above and beyond support and i you know I'm not going to say that, like, you know, as you've said, you know, workforce participation obviously can improve life life outcomes for people with a disability. Um, but, again, as we've mentioned, like, if workplaces continue to con- discriminate, um, fail to provide extended support or training or funding or remain inaccessible, this makes it an incredibly unsafe workplace. And, you know, I know we've mentioned some barriers before, but do you see that there are some barriers that keep coming up that um, – avoid or, or stop people from maintaining fair, safe and liveable um, spaces?
8: Well, absolutely. You know, there is a stigma against people with an intellectual disability that even for other people with disabilities, they'll say things like, don't treat me like I've got an intellectual disability. You know, it really, even in the hierarchy of disability, it's right down the bottom. Um, and so the other, th- sorry, the other thing that you touch on there, so that's not quite the answer to your question, is about that's support for is support for decision-making, because the NDIS is a market. And yesterday you heard at the Disability Royal Commission, National Disability Services, the peak body for the ADS, keep on saying it's a matter of choice, it's a matter of choice. Now, people with an intellectual disability, almost by definition, need support for decision-making, not substitute decision-making, not people making decisions for them Mm -hmm. or in their best interest, but support to make their own decisions. And what we see here is that everyone assumes that they know what's best for people and that they're not respecting and providing the supports for decision-making. Um, in regard to the rest of it, you're absolutely right about unsafe conditions in terms of, you know, first of all, there's violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And if we're going to talk about multi-million dollar businesses spruiking the fact that they're employing people with disability but only paying them $2.50 an hour, I don't really know how we can get away from a, a, a definition of exploitation there. But when you talk about um everything else, it's yes, can I have job security if you know, if I am not properly supported at work, you know, like the chances of something going wrong is really high. And so people with intellectual disability do need ongoing support in the workplace. Doesn't mean they need twenty four seven someone with them twenty four seven, but they do need people to check in on them quite regularly because change is harder to manage if you need support for decision making. So um, you know there's just there is a big systemic reform and everyone is correct to say it's complex because it's the way that some big systems interface with each other that causes a lot of these problems so it is a big thorny problem but underneath it there's the fact that people with intellectual disability are not valued and are seen as second, set second class citizens and, um, and less important.
3: Yep and that's definitely not um, an attitude that should continue to prevail and it's sad to see and know that uh, that happens within the disability community, but obviously that happens in lots of different communities. I feel like also what's important to mention, I feel like what uh, a lot of the work that Inclusion Australia do is so important, is knowing that, like, even the NDIS and the NDIA, um, a lot of the staff who do identify as having a disability, a majority of them have, you know, they started off with um either when the NDIS was created and also the NDIA, I think, I believe in like 2016 from memory, um, a lot of that stuff had like physical and sensory disabilities. So if you don't have people um, or a representative of people with intellectual disabilities with variations in class and gender um, and race, like how do we expect better decision making to come forward? So I think I was also going to ask how do you think better advocacy and policy um, changes can actually happen where it is representative of people with intellectual disabilities as well as, you know, different um, intersecting struggles?
8: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. We've had a few conversations. You know, the NDIS itself is made up of about 60% of people with cognitive disability. So your three big cognitive disabilities are intellectual disability, autism and acquired brain injury. Mm-hmm. and Yes, you're absolutely right when, when you look at the positions available for people with disability they're mainly for people with, um, physical and sensory disability. So therefore people are just not familiar. You know, you think that you get policy developed without a deep understanding of what a cognitive disability might be, might look like or how, what support people might need. So we need more people at work is what we need. We need people at work in all the, at, at DSS where the policy is made at the NDIA. And in all of the regular workshops all the way from your, you know, your local footy club right the way through to the big multinationals. Um, Because once people, their research shows that attitudes change when you have personal connection. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is increase all the personal. Um, And in the meantime, organisations like us are employing people with intellectual disability, training them as self-advocates, and you did see at the Royal Commission that... A number of people with intellectual disabilities spoke for themselves and spoke about how they were scared to ask for more money or better jobs, but they did speak for themselves. And even for the Royal Commission that's progress because their earlier hearings didn't have so many people with intellectual disability speaking. So, you know, having people speak for themselves is the most important
3: Yeah, absolutely. And understanding empowerment and self-determination and knowing that there needs to be support in decision-making and that looks very different for everybody else as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today, Catherine. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we um, wrap up?
8: (laughs) No, thanks very much for having me on. I've appreciated the conversation.
3: Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye.
0: And that was a discussion with Catherine McAlpine, who's the CEO of Inclusion Australia, which is the peak national organization of people with an intellectual disability and their families. And Catherine joined Inez today to speak about the labor exploitation of people with disability and the Disability Royal Commission. And I just can't encourage people enough to go have a look and keep track of the social media coverage that Inclusion Australia, so that's at Inclusion Oz on Twitter, has been providing about the ongoing Disability Royal Commission hearings and also looking up some of those news articles that kind of humanize these concerns and uh, speak to people who have experienced this awful labor exploitation where, um, you know, as discussed in the interview, people are working for less than $2.50 a day and being exploited because they have a disability.
5: Are you ready to vote? The federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enroll to vote before 8 p.m. Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol you need proof of ID like a driver's licence or passport or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorized by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. A 3CR supporter.
0: You're on 3CR 855 AM listening to the Thursday Morning Breakfast Show. It is 8.02 in the morning, and I think we might go to a track. Here's a new one. Well, came out in February, still new, um, by Genesis Owusu and Winston surfshirt shirt. This is There's Only One.
1: They one of you. There's a they want of you. There's a they want of you.
0: to Thursday. Oops, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 8:55 a.m. And you just heard a fantastic new track from Winston Surfshirt and Genesis Owusu. That was "There's Only One." Um, yeah, incredible pick me up in the morning. Now, we wanted to talk about something this is you know, we don't usually do this, but just kind of riffing on um, something that I think has been very important that's come up in a lot of concerns around election coverage and you know the lead up to the federal election, and that was concerns about media consolidation. So both around, you know, Murdoch media ownership of um, a huge range of platforms across so called Australia, but also around um you know, the practices of journalism and the established practices of things like being invited to drinks at a particular, you know, with particular political parties and the, the notion of becoming an insider in order to gain information and then be able to report on particular things. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm currently doing media studies um, as part of my own research, but I thought it was just really important for people to to start thinking more critically um, and building their media literacy and um, also expanding their media consumption uh, because there's been so much critique of uh, mainstream media platforms sort of not really pressing people on the issues and instead making it uh, about candidate versus candidate. Um, And I think – uh, this was captured really well in uh, a video that was that 's been circulating on social media uh, a while ago. It was Professor Jay Rosen from i think new york university's journalism school um, don 't quote me on that I could be wrong but um, he was speaking with Lee Sales from ABC about um, yeah about the about the idea of uh, of Political campaign journalism uh, being reduced to a sort of horse race between the two major candidates, and it, in, it, instead of uh, instead of journalists interrogating the the issues and uh things people were concerned about what the general public was raising about particular election election platform issues it became about one guy versus the other guy and reporting uh would then just focus on you know who was ahead in the horse race and um you know who's kind of winning and it becomes about personalities rather than about political issues yeah i just think that's uh something really important to keep a focus on because that really does seem to be uh, the general scope of uh, of election coverage that we've seen across mainstream media.
3: Yeah, I think it almost ends up becoming like a personality popularity context. And everybody wants like that little media clip or that gotcha moment, um, or the best press photo. And I feel like it's easy to get disillusioned with that. And I feel like especially with me, um, just personally, I'm always doom-scrolling, and I'm always going, what's going on? Have you seen this? And it always becomes, um, starts to just become, I just want everybody to know how terrible this is, and it feels like you're not uniting over shared values, but over your mutual hatred of someone. And, to be fair, that is a very good bonding tactic. <laughs> but, uh,
0: yeah, no, I totally, um, I totally agree about the idea of like finding places to unite. Like, we need to build coalitions to work together to make change. Um, and while it is useful to be able to collectively say, you know, what is this person doing, mm-hmm. um, it is also important to come together and sort of, you know, push for for a you know a restructuring of society um, in in the way that we. Want it to be, and um, with yeah, with the the kind of gotcha moments as well. I think we saw something with um, Adam Bant from the Greens yesterday, um, really, you know, put, putting a putting a stop to a, a question that was put forward by a journalist from the Australian Financial Review, uh, where you know it really shouldn't be about asking people to quote a, a specific statistic. It should be about you know what policies are people putting forward that uh, you know that that do the best for the most people. And I think, you know, reorienting reorienting that conversation is so important. And something that I wanted to emphasize here as well is just the crucial role that indigenous media plays in truth-telling in this space and truth-telling about a variety of issues and reporting on politics in a really honest and genuine way that evaluates a variety of different issues. So Indigenous X, for example, incredible, you know, incredible work to raise the, uh, raise the profile of a variety of different political issues um, in a way that is not focused on valorizing a particular candidate of any, um, you know, any political party, but instead is based on, you know, care for community and achieving outcomes for communities and, you know, fighting against injustice. And in terms of independent reporters, uh, somebody who I've, you know, looked up to for a very long time and who I think uh, everyone should subscribe to her Substack is Amy McGuire, who really, um, has been doing a lot both through the Substack and also through her social media to ask these very important questions about, you know, the actual function of our media establishment and the way that it works to kind of entrench systems of representation and, um, I guess shrink our political imagination. Um, so I, yeah, really encourage people to, to, to follow that as well. And, I mean, of course, you know, you can't be too sour on independent media and community media if you're listening to 3CR right now.
3: Exactly. You must love community media. Yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, similar to your point before, that anybody can memorize a few facts and spit them out whenever it is appropriate, um, in the right settings for the right people, and be almost adaptable and, and Borderline infallible in that way, but you have to understand, like, where the facts come from, what is the history telling us, what is the policy actually going to do, um, knowing which statistic and which year this happened serves a l- more limited purpose than actually describing the policy in an engaging and accessible way to the representatives of your... Town. <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, I think that is—it's it, so important that people need to be, you know, focusing on the issues rather than the characters. I mean, you know, there's there's space to focus on the characters if there's you know, if egregious things have happened, but really, this is about looking at you know, looking at policies, interrogating policies. And, um, yeah, I encourage people, you know, if you see folks in your family, um, you know, your friends who are kind of talking about how they do feel disillusioned with mainstream media, I encourage people to, you know, start get start getting involved, start listening to community media, reading independent media sources. You know, there's plenty of stuff out there. There's, like, Junkie, Crikey, like, um, you know, Indigenous X, as I mentioned before. There's a bunch of different... Um, you know, papers and radio stations that are having these conversations. And I think if we start engaging um, and speaking to these more, you know, we can actually maybe start developing a bit more of a robust political imagination in this country.
3: Yeah, I think, um like, even in our, I think I had an interview with Thomas Feng uh, recently on Thursday Breakfast, and they spoke about, um, like, talking to your, like, Chinese family, um, obviously I think that conversation definitely transcends a lot of cultures because it's very similar, um, and I think one thing that he said always has really stuck with me after that interview is that so often uh, people of colour, Indigenous people are like advocating in white spaces constantly, and being able to just sit across the table from your family and talk to them about the election and, you know, bring up the issues and see them as human beings that um, maybe just want to know more, and... Yeah, I feel like doing that in your community, in your families, is also really important um, because advocating in white spaces definitely gets tiresome. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we might leave it
0: there for our little hot take on the election. Um, We might go to a CSA and we'll come back to you for our final interview. Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter.
5: If you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that is going to translate into every aspect of
8: women's lives. Accent to Women. What a border! They don't see it like
9: a big wall right along the... How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives?
4: Accent to Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. The Community Radio 3CR.
3: And we are now joined by Kelly Court, who is a Climate Change Policy Advisor for the Australian Council of Social Services, or ACOS, and she joins us today to speak on the ACOS response to the recent IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Kelly. I think from Brisbane as well? Yes.
9: Yeah.
3: Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks for getting up a little bit earlier for us. Um, but yeah, I know that we have lots to talk about, so maybe I'll just jump straight in. I know that the latest report on climate change um, mitigation, the IPCC, say, sorry, warns that immediate and deep emission reductions across the entire economy um, need to be had. We need to have immediate action. And our ability to limit the warming uh, could, if we don't get it down by like 1.5 degrees Celsius, could be really devastating. So maybe would you mind speaking on what the IPCC report outlines and what are the projected effects?
9: as if I also just give a bit more background to the IPCC as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's it's a report that's developed by um, global scientists and quite a few Australian scientists have contributed to this report, but they also work with governments as well in terms of putting the reports together. They're done every five years, so this is the latest. The last one was done five years ago. And, and what we've seen over the last... Uh, three months is three reports released. So the first one looked at an update on the climate science. What, what can we see happening? Um, and that report confirms that, um, global warming and climate change is definitely happening. It is, um, man-made, induced by humans through burning fossil fuels and deforestation. Um, and that it's, and that it's worse than we anticipated. And, and it basically concluded that, um, that every every action we take in terms of burning fossil fuels leads to more warming um, and more dangerous climate impacts. The second report that was released in February looked at what's the extent of the impacts that we're seeing. So, you know, I think in Australia, um, a lot of people have recently, in the last few years, experienced quite a few... Extreme weather events. So the 2019-2020 bushfires, for example, was made worse by climate change. So we can't say that climate change caused them um, because there is always extreme weather events, but it was made worse by climate change. So the science is quite clear on that. Mm-hmm. And then again, what we've just seen in the floods um, in Queensland and New South Wales, um, unprecedented, again, extreme weather event, which again, was made worse because of of climate change. And and that report in February showed that the impacts um, from global warming are getting worse um, and that, in particular, Australia is a country that will um, be impacted sort of more than other countries just because of the nature of our climate here. Um, And then this report here looks at mitigation. So what can we do to... Uh, reduce global warming. Um, so, yeah, it's a really important port, the report. It, there was, um, a bit of controversy around it that was hard for the scientists and the politicians, I guess you could say, to agree. Yeah. <laughs> the final recommendations in the report. Um, but it still had some really hard hitting recommendations. So, Um, I'm happy to go into what were some of the key findings now. So basically it showed, this report showed that greenhouse gas emissions um, that cause the global warming continue to rise and that if we continue down the route of climate uh, current pledges um, to 2030, so that's all the pledges that governments made last year um, at the at the climate conference in Glasgow, it would be impossible for us to limit warming to 1.5 degrees um, or or not have what they call an overshoot. So what some scientists talk about is we may hit a 2-degree temperature rise above industrial levels, but that we can come back down to 1.5 degrees. Yeah. So they say if if we go on current climate pledges, there's no way we can limit warming to a 1.5-degree increase we will overshoot, but that if we if we take stronger action in the next few years, so we would need to peak global emissions by 2025, halve them by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050, there is still a chance that we can limit warming to 1.5 degree yep. without an overshoot. Now, that's global. So what that means in Australia is because we're a developed country in fact, we're one of the most richest countries in the world. Um, we need to do what's called our fair contribution um, to limit global warming. So developed countries actually have to go further and faster. Um, so there was a report released last year um, by some Australian scientists and economists that found for Australia, we would need to cut our emissions by 75% by 2030 and achieve net zero by 20. 35, um, and we're nowhere near that in Australia.
1: Yep. <laughs> um,
9: so, th- so that was that was one of the main findings. The other key finding was that there's no room to build new fossil fuel infrastructure. So we should not be building new coal-fired power stations, new gas power stations. Um, we shouldn't be extending mining, um, for example, and we definitely shouldn't be subsidising fossil fuels. Um, so there is talk in Australia of actually building new gas mm-hmm. mines, uh, well, gas powered stations, and and expanding um, both coal and gas mining. Yes. Um, the report also found that we need to make rapid transformations across all sectors, so not just energy, um, but agriculture. So it paid a lot of attention to methane emissions that you get from um, fertilisers and cows. Yes farting um, and that we also need to go a lot harder on things like energy efficiency so Mm -hmm. in commercial buildings but also in residential homes so how can we improve the housing stock in Australia which is actually quite poor here in Australia compared to other countries Um, and redesign our cities and shift to zero and low-carbon transport and yep. and conserve our ecosystem. So we have to go a lot harder across all of our sectors. It also said that we need to um, improve our climate finance. So that's the support we give to developing countries, like our Pacific neighbours, for example, yep. to help them um, reduce their emissions and also adapt. And then finally, um, they called out for the, for the first time that, We've got to do all this in an equitable way. So we've got to make sure that people experiencing financial and social disadvantage are not disadvantaged even more and that, we should be targeting policies to make sure that they benefit from the transition.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I know given like the the floods and the bushfires that have been happening and also the increase in every summer is getting hotter and hotter and there's not enough ACON um, in a lot of public housing, community housing, And we also know that people who are the most historically excluded are the ones who are affected by climate action in the most immediate and devastating ways, particularly First Nations people who have been frontlining climate policy forever and are the first to be affected. Um, How do you think, you know, there's also a lot of... Um, displaced people for due to poor climate policy um, and who are climate refugees as well so how can we prioritize I guess the needs of historically excluded communities and also improve you know outcomes such as mental health and um, homes and jobs and general quality of life
9: yeah yeah and you summarized it really well there that people already experiencing um, disadvantage whether it's communities and First Nations communities um or, or individuals um are being impacted first, worse and longest by these extreme weather events, but also if we have really poor policies as part of the transition. So an example of poor policies is you know, we've put subsidies to help make solar energy for roof for households Cheaper, which is great, um, but we're putting the cost of that on electricity bills. So that means that someone who's living uh, on Job Seeker um, or, or a pension, disability pension, you know, who's who's earning who's earning less than um, you know forty six dollars a day on Job Seeker um, and have you know paying rent and have high energy bills to keep Mm -hmm. themselves cooler in summer or warmer in winter, are also paying for those subsidies for people to put solar on their homes. So someone who owns a home already has an asset. Um, So, you know, there's other ways that we can um, still help people get solar but not put them on electricity bills, um, for example. So that's an example of a poor policy. And, in fact, what we should be doing is that governments should be using those subsidies to actually invest in community housing. So public and community homes should all have improved energy efficiency, access to solar. So prioritising that housing first is a way that we can still reduce our emissions um, but we're also um, helping people experiencing poverty and inequality at the same time. So you're achieving multiple societal goals with a smart policy. Does
3: that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to echo that there is policy change that needs to happen as well as societal change, as well as, like, attitudes and also with the election coming up as well. I feel like that is um, very important to always remember. But I think we might leave it there for today just because we're running out of a bit of a time. Um, But Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us here today. We'll also link to the media release um, in our show notes. Um, Was there anything else that you wanted to say?
9: No, not at all. Um yes, it and it's very important for this election as well. We yep. we need to act in the next few years.
3: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today and hope you have a good morning. Thank you. No, My it's... pleasure. Bye. Bye.
0: And that was Kelly Court, who's the Climate Change Policy Advisor for the Australian Council of Social Service, or ACOS. And Kelly joined us today to speak about ACOS's response to the recent IPCC, or Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Changes, report and the need to develop social policy that is, you know, in line with – climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies. Uh, we will be linking to that in our show notes, but I think we're coming up to time uh, for today. We'll do a very quick rundown of what we've had on today. So first up, uh, we heard from Irene Solidis noise who's the founding secretary of Rahu, or the Renters and Housing Union, who joined us to discuss the impact of increased cost of living on renters. We were then joined by Isabel Morton, who's a community member who's been involved in analyzing government policy and legislative pushes in Australia affecting trans- trans and gender diverse people and she spoke about that and also about the harms of framing trans lives and identities as a legitimate arena for debate.
3: And then we were joined by Catherine McAlpine from Inclusion Australia, and they are the peak national body for intellectual disabilities and their families. And they spoke about labour exploitation of people with a disability at the Disability Royal Commission. And then recently we were joined by Kelly Court from ACOS, who is the Climate Change Policy Advisor, and they spoke on ACOS's response to the IPCC report and climate action. Yes. Excellent. So important.
0: And I really think that we need to keep all of these issues in mind as we head into the federal election. As we were talking about in our little uh, our little riffin on journalism, <laughs> uh, it's really important to be focused on issues rather than particular candidates. It's not a horse race. It really is about all of our lives and making sure that we, uh, you know, try and bring about a just future for all. So we'll catch you next week on Thursday breakfast.
5: Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.